Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 24 as we get started. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'll give you just a moment. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we have black hardback Bibles uh, under the seats around you. Feel free to grab one of those. Those are there for you. Um, as we get started this morning, I want to just begin by sharing my heart with you as a church um, on, on a couple of things that, that I feel like are really encouraging. So um, if you are new here and don't know a lot about our church, um, just some things to know about us. We're growing uh, numerically, and we consider that a blessing. Uh, we love seeing the seats filled up. We know that eventually that means we're going to have to make more room. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we've got a team of people who've been meeting since uh, before this time last year, just preparing the way, making plans, and looking at what those options will be for us when we get there. I say all that to say, um, I really am excited about where we are as a church. We are debt-free, uh, which is a blessing from the Lord. And, uh, and we're meeting budget every week. And so those are, those are important things uh, as we go forward. And I think we attribute that to the blessing of the Lord and the faithfulness of his people. And so I wanted to share that with you. Um, but we know that um, we can quickly become comfortable and complacent in that and, and, and take our eyes off the mission and, uh, and, and focus in on ourselves. And so we don't want to do that. We know that God has called us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be sacrificial in our living and our giving. And so um, we do have a Philippines trip coming up. Uh, in June, and there's a team of, of roughly 15, 20 folks going. It's almost $2,000 a person to go. And so if you do the math, we're looking at you know, easily 30 plus grand to get the team there, and that's very expensive. It's not in our budget to go. And so I just want to bring that before you so you could pray with us about that, um, that even if God would speak to your heart about um, contributing to that, you would know how to do that. So just make sure if, if you decide to do that, you designate it as such on the envelope. This needs to go to the Philippine missionaries. Um, that way we can set it apart and, and make sure it goes where you want it to go. Um, but also want to, just to let you know what we're not asking you to do is to, redir- we're not asking you to redirect your tithe to that. Um, but if, if God puts it on your heart to give above and beyond, we want you to know how you could do that. So, um, so that's, that's before you. We'll be leaving in June. And, uh, and I know that uh, the team is out raising money like crazy. You may know some of the folks going and may have already helped some of them in some way. So um, we'll be talking more about that as, as the months come and we get closer to June. So today we're going to be looking at the return of Christ. And uh, so we're going to cover all the end times and lay it out so clearly that you walk out of here knowing exactly what's going to happen. Was that sarcastic enough? Um, not really. Okay. And so um, among the areas of theology, uh, probably no more intriguing, misunderstood, and highly debated areas than the end times. And there are some reasons for that. Um, Though we have prophecies, a a number of prophecies, laying out for us things to expect and things to look for in the end times, there's still room for us to step back without clarity and not necessarily be confident in the series of events uh, that will unfold. And it's interesting because this is one of, the, one of the cautions I give to you. As you grow in Christ, you come to respect certain authors and preachers and theologians that just because you respect somebody, you don't just take everything they believe wholesale. And this would be an area for me specifically. There are theologians I, I follow and I track and I admire who I land on different, in different camps than, uh, than maybe where they land on end times in terms of the series of events. And so let me just give you some of the big events that the Bible talks about. To the return of Christ, which is our topic today. Indisputable, Jesus is coming back. Okay, we're going to be looking at that today. In addition to that, we have a time of tribulation, time of great suffering, uh, and then we have a time of, of peace, which is known in the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ with his saints, 
Uh, and we also have the resurrection of the dead, these major events uh, that are coming somewhere in the timeline of human history. The debate is not whether or not those things are going to happen. The debate is really where the return of Christ fits into that timeline. And, and so there is debate um, in, 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 in the world, and we're not really we're going to try to conquer that today. We're going to hone in on what is indisputable, that our Savior, our King of all kings, will return. And we're going to talk about the hope that that gives us and our role in that. Now, if you've got your sermon notes in front of you, just a word. We're not going to conquer all that today. We're going to make it through about two-thirds of that, and the rest of that is for you to go home as you continue to study God's Word on uh, what this means for you. So... We're going to start early on in Matthew 24 with the words of Jesus, and, uh, and so let's talk about why this matters, okay? Um, beyond this is interesting, beyond this is intriguing, beyond the fact that uh, we haven't as a, as a church, when I say church, the Christian world, solved this mystery completely, beyond those things, why does it matter that we should be talking about these sort of things? First of all, I would say this, because the Bible speaks is important, Right? So if we were to say, well, it's not all that important, we can't figure out the dates and the times and all those sorts of things, and let's just ignore it, it's not all that important. What we're saying then is that the Bible then says unimportant things, which we don't believe here at Salt Rock. We believe that every word is important, relevant, weighty, God-glorifying. And so because the Bible speaks, we ought, we ought to listen, right? Well, in addition to that, as we look at the end times, whether you... Uh, call yourself a pre-trib or post-trib or a pre-millennium, post-millennium, amillennium, wherever you land in all that, there's some things that matter there. Because in the unfolding of the end times, we see a lot about the character of God. We see a, a, a magnificent display of both his power and his justice, coupled with his love and his mercy. And so there's some things that we see about God from studying the end time prophecies. But not only that, I think if we're going to be real honest, um, like many generations before us, we look at the world of current events and we say, goodness gracious, he's, he must be coming back soon. Things just seem to be spiraling, right? Out of hand, getting worse and worse on an increasing pace. It's almost like the illustration of the frog and the pot of boiling water, how the frog is placed in the boiling water while it's cool, and slowly over time, the water begins to be heated up to the point where the frog doesn't notice, and before he knows it, he's in a pot of boiling water, and it feels that way oftentimes when we, when we study the news and we, we see what's happening abroad and uh, the, the unrest and and we, we study and we watch Israel and what's happening in the Middle East. We see a great deal of unrest that causes us to ask the question, right? Surely he's coming back soon. Christians being beheaded. I mean, this is 2015, right? Not just rare occasions, but in droves. Surely he's coming back soon. So let's go to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, looking at the way he wants us to think about his return and the timing of it all. And why that matters. Starting in verse 27, Jesus begins to describe his return. Verse 27 For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. So if you can imagine the lightning striking off in the eastern horizon, it's so bright that you see it off, flickering off objects on the western horizon horizon, so will come the Son of Man. Jesus is saying clearly that his return is going to be highly visible. Highly visible. Okay, there's going to be a lot of contrast with how he came the first time, right? Not highly visible. 
Only high and visible to a select few, some shepherds, right? Some wise men, Mary and Joseph. But the world, by, by and large, missed it. So what Jesus is saying is, in my return, you can be assured nobody's going to miss it. Look at what he says in verse 28. He actually pulls what I believe an idiom or a saying from his culture. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And this kind of sounds weird, but if you're an outdoors person, you, you know that that's true, that it's hard for buzzards to miss a dead animal, right? And so there's an, it's almost like saying the only thing true, uh, assured in life are death and taxes. It's a current idiom of we know this is going to happen. And so that's what Jesus is doing, saying essentially that you can be sure of this. Just as sure as the buzzard's going to find dead animal, you can be sure of this. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so it seems to be post-tribulation, just throwing it out there, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its life, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes on the earth will mourn. Okay, So again, nobody's going to miss this. There's even going to be mourning among all the tribes. Now, not really sure what this mourning represents, except for quite possibly in context what Jesus is going to say. While there are signs warning people that it's coming, a vast majority of the earth is going to be caught off guard. It's just consistent with what we continue to read. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, maybe the four corners of the world, from one end of heaven to the other. So the main point here, I think Jesus is saying, is that when I return, the world won't miss it. As surely as lightning flashes in the east and you see its effects in the west, as surely as the buzzard finds the dead animal, rest assured, every corner of the earth, every tribe is going to know that I have returned. We continue reading in verse 32. He says this. He gives us, begins to give us some, some insight into, uh, into what we're looking for and how we're to be looking for it. He says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. So he's going to use a fig tree or a fruit tree to give us an illustration on what it's going to be like. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Right? You know that. You, right now it's happening in the world around us. The trees are beginning to bud. And you know what? Warm weather is on its way. If the weather changes, we get a cold snap next week, which it's been known to do in Texas, and we get six inches of snow. We get six inches of snow knowing what? The next day it's going to be 87 degrees. Summer is on the way. So Jesus is using that as an illustration here to say, just like that, you know summer is on the way. So also, verse 33, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Okay, and so before we go to the next verse, which is some, some room to kind of talk about what he means in the next verse, here's what we know, that his come, there will be warnings or evidences, if you will, much like the changing of seasons. It won't just be like a light switch. There will be indicators letting us know, hey, Jesus is coming. There will be subtle Visible signs, right? The tree doesn't go from no leaves to leaves the next day. It's slow. You wake up and you realize, whoa, there are buds on that tree. And then the buds grow and then they bloom and give way to leaves and fruit. And so in the same way will be the return of Jesus. Now verse 34. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now this this particular verse uh, causes us to have some questions. What are you talking about, Jesus? This generation. I mean, he's talking to a generation of the first century here when he says this generation will not pass away. Quite a few different ideas on what he meant here. Could I just offer up what I believe probably the, the most reasonable uh, in what's happening here? I don't know why we would take the prophecies of Jesus any different from the other prophecies we have in Scripture, in particular the Old Testament. So here's how the Old Testament prophecies primarily work. God speaks through a prophet, and the prophet stands before the people and talks about a situation that is happening or about to happen to those people of that generation. And God uses the description of the events of whatever is about to take place to also prophesy about something and to illustrate something that's going to happen in the future. So, for example, the prophets of the Old Testament describing an oncoming exile for the people of God, yet at the end there will be this rescue coming. Through those prophecies, we learn and we read about the coming of the Messiah, the one who would ultimately rescue, not just from Babylonian exile, but right from, earth, from our earthly condition. And so in the Old Testament, prophets are speaking about current times in a way that God speaks through them to illustrate future times. And so we look back on it and we see that more clearly. So for me, that's the most reasonable understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about some real-life current events for the people of God. We know that human history is unfolding in a way where the, the, uh, the temple will be destroyed in A.D. 70. We know that a lot of persecution is coming towards the people of God in real time right here for the people who are coming after Jesus But why wouldn't we read it the same way we do the Old Testament prophets where Jesus is using current events in the lives of his initial readers to describe future events? So for me, this generation means both the generation that Jesus is speaking to, but also the future generation, the generation that will witness the trees changing season. For this generation, the ones who witness the changing of the seasons, right? this generation won't pass away until these things come to completion. And so, we continue, heaven and earth will, will, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus, I believe, saying this, that what I'm saying to you transcends what happens in this current generation. My words are going to go forward. There will be generations in the future who will read these words and understand what's happening to them as well. Now, Matthew 24, verse 36 we begin to hone in on the day and the hour. This is what causes me to be super skeptical when, when some modern-day prophet goes and rents a billboard and puts the day and the time and the meeting place to meet Jesus. I get skeptical as soon as I hear that. From the words of Jesus, now concerning that day, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Well, what about the super spiritual? No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What is he saying? There'll be a change in seasons. There'll be visible, subtle changes that allow the people of God, those who are looking, those who are awake, to know that the time is coming. However, no one will know the exact day or the exact hour. Only the Father. Then he uses Noah as an illustration to kind of describe for us what it's going to be like. Verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what happened with Noah? Noah was given a prophecy. He was given instructions. He Faithfully fulfilled those and built the ark. People around him were doubters. Many people were unaware. Verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given to marriage. 
going on about their normal day lives, right? Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then things changed, right? Verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, nobody's going to miss it, but a majority of the earth is going to be caught off guard. Verse 40, just to illustrate it even more. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. The point that Jesus is making, verse 34, therefore stay awake. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, he's not calling the church to 24-hour awakeness, right? What he's calling us to is to a spiritual awakeness, that we are considering the times. We are watching the events. We are giving ourselves to God's word. We are spending time with the Lord Jesus, that we would stay awake, that we would be among those who are expecting it. Now, we'll all be caught off guard on some level, right? I mean, it could happen in 13 minutes from now, right? caught off guard on some level, but we're looking for it. So when it happens, it fulfills a longing inside of us where we breathe in deeply and we say, finally, finally, finally. This is consistent with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, just the first four verses here. Paul says to the church, now concerning the times and the seasons. Does it sound familiar? The same thing Jesus was talking about. Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, anything additional. Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Consistent, right? Like a lightning, like a flood, a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman woman and they will not escape. Our women in the room who've given birth are going, okay, I get that. Suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm in this situation that I know I can't get out of and it's not going to do anything but get worse, right? Caught off guard, but your attention is grabbed, right, ladies? Verse four, but you are not in darkness, brothers. What is he saying? Same thing Jesus was saying. There will be subtle signs for you. For that day to surprise you like a thief. So for those who are awake, those who are looking for it, though we don't fully know the day or the hour, though we may not fully agree on the unfolding of events exactly in the right order, we're awake as a church, we're looking for it, that we won't be caught off guard. The morning described by Jesus of the nations, the morning of the nations, won't be our morning. It'll be those who were caught off guard. Now we're going we're gonna to go to Revelation. Have we, have we wet the appetite yet for Revelation? Um, so we're going to hit specifically the return of Christ in Revelation. We're going to come back at the end of this year, God willing. <laughs> Jesus does, if Jesus comes back, scratch the rest of the sermon series for the year, okay? But, but if he doesn't, we're planning on going through a sermon series at the end of this year through Revelation, okay? So we're not going to cover it all today. What we're going to look at today is specifically the return of Christ as revealed in the Revelation. So we're going to go to Revelation 1, just a couple verses to get us started. So this is how the Revelation begins. Behold, Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Sound familiar? We've already heard that type of wording. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Sounds familiar, right? Nobody's going to miss it. Even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on the earth will well on account of him. 
Sounds very familiar, right? There'll be wailing, there'll be mourning, everybody's going everybody's gonna to see it. Even so, amen, or even so, let it be. Verse 8, a quote of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this is very consistent with what we've read so far. It's extremely consistent with what happens in Acts 1. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. He gives them the great commission, lets them know the Holy Spirit is coming to fill them, to launch the church. And in Acts 1, verses 10, or actually before verse 10, he ascends to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. And the disciples are left like with their mouths open, their jaws dropped, looking up into the air until two angels on the ground speak to them. So in verse 10 of Acts 1, while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men, which we believe to be angels, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So there'll be something remarkably similar in the way that Jesus ascended right before their eyes in the way that he returns. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go to um, Revelation 19, read some, Revelation 20, and then then some from 22. We're not going to read all of all those chapters. We're just specifically going to look at um, what we can be expecting with the return of Jesus. Starting in chapter 19, if you want to go ahead and turn there, in verse 11. So this is what's been described in Acts 1, 9, and 10. He's going to return in the same way, flash of lightning like a flood, coming on the clouds, verse 11 of Revelation 19 says this. This is John the the Apostle. He sees this. Then I saw heaven heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And, And he's describing the return of Jesus here. Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You getting this in your head? Jesus out front, flame in his eyes on a white horse. The armies of heaven are right behind him on their horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So he's bringing with him a sense of judgment. So the the mourning isn't just the mourning of the nations, the wailing of the nations isn't just that they're caught off guard. It's that Jesus is coming back in battle formation, battle uniform, bringing a sword. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, when you contrast that to Isaiah 53 describing his first coming, same Savior, same Jesus, same Son of God, 
But his return is going to be incredibly different. He came meek and mild. He came to suffer. He came to die for the sins of many. He came to be killed, tortured. He's coming back now as a victorious warrior leading the armies of heaven. We can be sure of that. Now, verse, we're going to skip down to verse 19. Verse 19, Revelation 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their great armies gathered. So you get in this imagery? Jesus on his white horse. He's in battle formation, battle uniform. He's ready to go. <clears throat> the armies of heaven are behind him. Now we're going to get a description of what's happening on earth. The beast... The kings of the earth with their <clears throat> armies are gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Can I just stop right here? This is a bad idea. This is a very bad idea. Regardless of how you interpret what's happening here, what we're seeing is that the, the armies of men with the beast, potentially Satan, out front leading, are now going to meet Jesus and his army in battle. <clears throat> it's not going to end well for them. I don't know if they have any other option, but it's not going to end well for them. And so verse 20, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who, is, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Potentially here we have Satan working with somebody here on earth who is a false prophet. Both are captured and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So we have the beast and the false prophet bound and thrown alive into the lake of fire. Doesn't end well, right? I don't even know if this war actually begins much before it's over. Second Thessalonians 2, Paul writes to the church in verse 8. And he describes this way what will happen at the return of Christ. He says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Remember what, how Jesus would describe? A sword was coming out of his mouth. So we don't get this imagery that Jesus literally has a sword hanging out of his mouth, but simply by his breath, he brings the army of his enemies to nothing by simply just exhaling. That's the power that he comes back with. And he will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. All right, now we're going to go to chapter 20 and read a few verses there. Starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. So originally we have a great white horse. Represents Jesus coming, great white throne. I think there's some similarity here we should pay attention to. Then I saw a great white throne. So what's happened? The beast and the false prophet have been bound and thrown into lake of fire. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. It's giving us this imagery of the authority of Jesus. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And so it seems like we're getting this description of the resurrection. As Christians, we believe in a bodily resurrection. When we die before this takes place, what we know specifically is that we go to be with Jesus, but not resurrected bodies. So we're awaiting this as one of the major events of the end times will be the resurrection of the dead, a bodily resurrection, like Jesus' resurrection, right? We know it's not the same. Though he had this similar appearance, he still had a physical body. Jesus is resurrected. He's eating fish, right? He's talking, but he walks through a door, right? So different, resurrected and real, but, but different. What many theologians and writers believe, a greater reality. And so we're awaiting that, right? I don't want this body back, right? As, as awesome as it, as, it, as it is, right? I don't want it back, right? All of its frailties, all the, you know, all the, uh, the bird leg jokes, man, I'm, I'll be done with it. I don't want this body back. I want something better. But we believe in a physical bodily resurrection. So what's being described here, I think, is, is an indication of that. The armies of heaven, uh, excuse me, in verse uh, 13, says the sea and the dead, uh, who, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, according to what's written in the book of life. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet, now death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A resurrection of the dead, a judgment of all people, and our determination on where we spend eternity is determined by what's written about us in the book of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, Paul writes to the church, I think some really remarkable things that, um, that we need to hear about what is taking place in this prophecy. So 1 Corinthians 15 primarily is a chapter about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus leading us to hope in our resurrection. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, we're just going to read 24, 25, and 26. Here's what Paul says. He says, then comes the end. So we know what he's talking about. He's thinking about end times. Then comes the end. When he, being Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying... Every rule and every authority and power. Sounds consistent with what we just read, right? He makes war. The armies on earth, the beast at the helm comes against him. All authority, right, has been destroyed and bound up. All of the authority of the enemies of Jesus. But then look at what he says. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So we're reading about the series of enemies being put under his feet. Beast, false prophet, death, Hades, they're all put underneath his feet. 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Incredibly consistent with what we just read. The last enemy for Jesus to defeat is death. And at the return of Jesus, death dies. Think about that. Death finally dies. There isn't a person in this room right now who isn't in some way somewhat affected by death. Many of you are praying for somebody who, uh, who has terminal, a terminal illness, maybe cancer. 
And so somebody you love is facing the very reality of death. Some people, maybe even in this room right now, are facing your own experience with suffering and death. Those of you who are young and thinking death is such a far away thing away, your bodies are growing older and you're getting day by day closer to death yourself. There isn't a person on earth who's ever been born who wasn't some way haunted by the imminent reality of death. And there's not a person on earth who is able to overcome death on their own strength or power. There's a, uh, there's a line from an Andrew Peterson song where he talks about um, the death of death, and he says this. It's a song called Day by Day. He says, you have never met a single soul who didn't feel the curse's toll. What, did, what, how, what is he talking about? Genesis 3, God said. Genesis 2, he said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die, and you will experience life under the curse, Adam. Chapter 3, he and Eve eat from the tree of life, and they experience death on many layers, and humanity exists under the curse of sin and death. So here the word of God is telling us that the last enemy of God to die will be death itself. So Andrew says, you've never met a single soul who didn't feel the curses toll, who didn't wish that death would die. Many of you have stood or sat or kneeled by the bedside of somebody you love who's passing away and didn't in your own words and your own longing wish that this would be true, that death would die. Death doesn't die until Christ returns. And the last enemy to be put under his feet is the enemy that chases us all every day, death itself. This is the point where death finally dies. Now, we'll jump to Revelation 22, two chapters away. Again, some more things that I think we can consider to be absolutely true about the return of Christ. 12, this is Revelation twenty-two, twelve. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. We already know that he's talked about a day being like a thousand years, a thousand years being like a day, so let's be cautious we don't just interpret that. But there will be, I think, a sense of it's coming soon. And, and every generation should sense it on some level, right? It's okay to sense that. It's okay to want that. We should want that. I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, my repayment, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now think about it. So if we think about how the story of the Bible begins, it begins with creation, the law, and the curse of sin and death, right? That's opening three chapters. Now, a lot of literature before we get to the end. And we just read at the end of the story, what happens? Death dies. This is what um, Tolkien calls the, the, the eucatastrophe. It's a word that I think he made up himself, but it's in the dictionary. And here's what it means. It means to be, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a description of a story that is um, facing such a great catastrophe that at the very last minute, something changes in the story and it flips, Okay, and it's called a eucatastrophe. It's a, a catastrophe that all of a sudden becomes good. So this is the greatest of all eucatastrophes, right? Sin and death have entered. The curse is shadowing over humanity. And now here at the end, he's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. What does Jesus do? He has the final word, and he flips it, the catastrophe of the curse, and turns it into something good. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, verse 14. And this is where it turns into a eucatastrophe. 
a great blessing for those who would believe. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. I'm so glad to read that phrase because <laughs> up until this point, there's a lot of destruction, a lot of pain, a lot of mourning and wailing. But in the midst of that, God speaks hope to his people. Blessed will be those who wash their robes. Symbolic, I believe, of when we trust Jesus in faith, he washes us and cleanses us from every sin. He clothes us in righteousness. Okay? This is, not an, uh, this is not mean you need to keep a clean change of clothes just in case this happens. I believe this is a spiritual description of the souls of those who believe so that they may have the right of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. However, there's a contrast here. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually Im, uh, immortal and the murders and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So we have those who've been clothed in robes of righteousness, and we have those who love and practice falsehood. Now, here's what we know is true. All those who are clothed now in righteousness have participated in falsehood at some point. What's the difference? This is where we're going. What's the difference? Look at verse 16. This is where I start to get excited. Verse 16 of chapter 22, Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am everything that the Old Testament promised. That's me. God's rescue, that's me. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take water of life without price. This beautiful reiteration of this invitation, come, all who are thirsty, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come. And he's quoting Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 55, when he says, come, this is from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, he says, come, everyone who thirsts, so if you're thirsty, come, come to the waters. So it's God inviting us to himself, and look at what he says, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which, does, which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus is saying everything that was promised through the prophet Isaiah, everything that was promised through David, everything that was promised through Ezekiel and, and on down through the prophets, I've come to fulfill. And let me reiterate that to you. What was promised? This beautiful invoca- invitation to come, to drink from the well of water, those who don't have money to pay for it. Those who aren't righteous enough on their own to come, come. Those who have no merit to stand before a holy God in a judgment scenario, Jesus says, come, come to me. Why are you settling for the satisfaction you find here on earth? Why not settle for something real, something right, something that lasts forever? Our number one excuse is what? I don't have money to buy that. I don't deserve to be in God's presence. I'm not good enough to be a Christian who would make it past this judgment. And Jesus says, "That's you're missing the invitation. I'm inviting those who don't have money to come. That's the gospel. 
I'm extending love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness for those who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it, who can't pay it back. Come. And so at the final judgment, we'll be separated according to what is written about us in the, in, in the book of life. There'll be those who are washed in fine robes and those who love and practice immorality, falsehood, and the difference will be what we've done with this invitation of Jesus to come. Not your own righteousness, how moral you've been, how awesome you've been, how many songs you know, your church attendance, how much money you've given to the Philippines mission trip. None of those things qualify you to make it past this judgment. The only thing that qualifies us is whether or not we have accepted this invitation from Jesus to come. And so now today, that invitation is extended to every person in this room. In between the gaps of what we read are incredible events that we'll get into later this year. But here's the point. Jesus is returning. And he won't return as, as the meek and mild servant. He's going to return as a victorious warrior, the king of all kings. Coming to make war against all of his enemies. And the people of God will be marked by faith in what we've done with this invitation to come and drink. Those who don't have water or, mo- or don't have money to buy food or water, come and drink and eat. So today that invitation is open to you. And if you're ready today to become a Christian, to experience the grace and mercy that come by faith and faith alone, I'm going to encourage you to talk to one of our prayer partners in a few minutes. We're going to have our prayer partners at the back. They'll have lanyards on. You'll know who they are. Um, I'm going to pray for you right now that if that's you, that, that God would give you the courage and, um, and, and direction in that. Um, For those of us who are believers, um, who have maybe drifted towards complacency or a sense of not really looking forward to the return of Christ, or maybe we get caught up in the reality that we can't figure out the timing of it, so we just don't think about it at all, maybe today God would have stirred something in you that would cause you to want to wrestle with the end times, to want to read about it, to, to strive to understand, not so that you would figure it all out down to the last minute or hour, but that you wouldn't be caught off guard. There will be some sense of expectation that when the lightning flashes of the return of Jesus and you see it reflect off the other horizon, you go, I know what that is. I know who that is. And that longing for Jesus to come and ultimately put to death, death itself, it will be fulfilled in you and you'll know, finally, he has come. Let me pray for us. And worship team will come up. Our prayer partners will be in the back. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's so amazing that that we can bow right now and we can speak to you. And the same Jesus we just read about who's going to be on a white horse leading the armies of heaven is the same Jesus we're speaking to right now. And so for many of us, we we want to confess we, we, we grow awfully comfortable here in this world. And even though when we read the news and we look at the the culture around us and the events around the globe, Jesus, even though we can see the seasons changing, so often we are so steeped in our own boiling pot of water of complacency and and, and comfortableness that, that our eyes aren't on the horizon. So Jesus, I pray you would stir in us this desire, this expectancy, this, this longing to see all enemies be placed underneath your feet. The moment where you have the final word over life and death, human history and the souls of man. 
And God, for any person here who doesn't know you that way, that today will be the day of salvation, that by faith, that person would come. Come and taste and see that you are good and that your mercy and forgiveness are free and freeing. God, would you move among us now, cause our hearts to respond to what we've read and heard from your word. We pray in Jesus' name.